0: Matthew 4, verse 23, speaking of Jesus, it says that he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pain, Those oppressed by demons, those who were having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And then verse 1 and 2 of Matthew 5, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, dot, 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 come back next week. Because that's where we'll pick up the the actual message that he shared. So, Lord, we ask you tonight to make us learners. Father, not just hearers enduring a sermon, but hungry learners. Holy Spirit. Jesus said that you would teach us and guide us into all truth. We welcome that ministry. We want it. We need it. We're asking, Lord, go deeper than our intellects. Touch our spirit with truth. Order the state of our soul around truth. Help us, Lord, to be broken, even from these verses tonight, broken off of the potential to settle, to come up short of your very best that you have for us. Help us as a spiritual family to hunger and thirst after righteousness in such a way that we always live with a small sliver of dissatisfaction in our souls that that we're not quite there yet. And Lord, grow the willing tonight. Help us, Lord, and our church to be more like your son. We ask it in his name. Amen. So if revival's breaking out, and when I'm speaking of revival, I'm speaking of some of the things we just read. The crowds are swelling. They're they're pressing after Jesus. Word of mouth is telling people, There's a man, we think he could be the Messiah. If he's not the Messiah, he's a wonder-working prophet. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's challenging our religious authorities. He's calling them phonies. And he's preaching and teaching in ways that we've never heard, but people are getting healed by the droves. We need to go to him. And so when that word of mouth spreads, the crowds are growing and growing. Signs and wonders are being done by Jesus. People are being healed. Demons are getting out of dodge because a great holy authority in Jesus is being pronounced against them and they're fleeing bodies that they've inhabited for years. And it could not have had more momentum than in this passage that we've just read through. And notice what Jesus does. He decides to preach the longest sermon ever recorded by him in all of the scripture. He, In the midst of revival, he called a timeout. And when the crowds were at their biggest, he didn't do one more healing. He didn't do one more deliverance. He actually stopped it. And by the way, the people were still coming. They still needed healing. They still needed to be delivered. There was tons of opportunity to keep operating in the supernatural. But he didn't. He actually ascended a hill, and he called his closest disciples to him, and he began to teach them through the Sermon on the Mount. Why do I even bring that up? Because you and I are living in a day where the Bible is being diminished in its significance. Many people, perhaps even people that frequent this sanctuary, believe that a sermon is the best way to quench the Holy Spirit because it gets in the way of the flow. Um, I understand that some people think that, and I can tell you it's not because I'm old. It's not because uh, I was trained as a Baptist in the Word. It's because when I see what Jesus did, when I see what Paul did, when I read the commands, especially to leaders, pastors, and teachers to keep the the Bible central in what happens, it liberates me to say to those that might think we quench the spirit with our sermons, it liberates me to say, find you a new place to worship. Find you a new place to learn. There's plenty out there. But as for me and this house... We're going to stay in the Word. Now, I'm preaching to the choir tonight because typically in a midweek service, you guys kind of came for the Word. You're probably, some of y'all are sitting there jonesing, saying, will you start preaching you're actually going to share? I'm going to. But but what's amazing to me is that, that Jesus called a time out on the supernatural revival of swelling clouds, signs and wonders, miracles and healings so he could release the longest sermon. And by the way, it's the most transformational sermon, in my opinion, that's ever been preached on earth. And so we're going to take our time with it, and I want to, I want to go ahead and get back into Matthew 4, into verse 23, and let's just watch what he does. Let's watch how Jesus ministers. And let's, let's be daring tonight and, and see if how he ministers is like how we minister, or this church ministers, or most churches minister. So there's room for conviction tonight and growth. So let's get there. So when Jesus starts, he wants to prepare the people. This is verse 23. Jesus prepares the people in four different ways. First of all, by his going. Jesus gets his feet involved in ministry. The Bible says Jesus goes throughout Galilee. It's actually enlarged later to many different places in that region. But he, he begins a heavy-hitting ministry in Galilee, which was about a strip of land, about 60 to 63 miles long, and only about 30 miles wide. So it's like a sliver of land that happened to contain at that time... The professionals tell me there's about three million people living in that condensed area, and so there he is. Notice what he didn't do; he didn't set up a tent, he didn't, you know, demand that people come and buy tickets to a crusade. He he actually left where he was and began an itinerant ministry, going to the people. Now, though he stopped in synagogues, and though he did not uh, shun of the the religious leaders who were actually open to who he was and what he was saying, he primarily ministered to the marginalized people. He typically went after those that nobody else valued. You're going to find Jesus among the masses, not among the elite. He was not one who stayed in a holy ivory tower demanding that people come to him. He actually went out on mission, and wherever he went, he did the things that we're going to see in here. And so I think about that. I think about that as a Christian. I think about that as a pastor who's been in local church ministry for more than two decades. And I, I'm, I'm wondering to myself, are, are we actually as committed to that type of ministry as Jesus was? And I'll say candidly, my answer for me and the, the church that I've shepherded is, no, we are probably out of balance. We, we, we lean more towards invite your friends, tell them to come here more than we have in the past said, all right, everybody, we're going to call a timeout on everything that God's doing. Let's get out the doors and go find the spiritually sick. Go find the hurting, the hospitalized, the disenfranchised, the wounded, those that have been scarred by religion. Let's go find them, minister Jesus to them, and then once they're a part of that family, then it'll make sense for them in their own hearts to come here and worship with the family. Jesus just went to the people. So he got his feet engaged. By the way, I'm, I'll hammer this a little, little less hard this time. But he also prepared the people by his speaking. He got his voice involved. It wasn't just smile, be nice, love people, give them a hug. It, it was more than that. Verse 23 says that he was teaching in their synagogues, and he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, forgive me for splitting hairs, but when you go verse by verse through a passage of Scripture, you're going to have some hairs to split. And so I want to make sure that we understand there's two aspects to Jesus' speaking ministry. The Bible says He would teach in their synagogues. So there were many synagogues that were now the places of local worship for the uh, Jewish people and instruction. They would pray, they would sing, they would um, uh unfurl the scrolls and read out of the Hebrew Bible. And oftentimes a visiting rabbi would come and he would be asked as a guest, would you please uh, teach on the scriptures? And do you know what they did and what Jesus did? They would take a passage of scripture and they would do then exactly what I'm doing now. They would open the scripture, they would read the scripture, then they would explain the scripture. That's what teaching was. It was what we call a didactic teaching. Sometimes they would teach uh, uh, portions, sometimes it would be verses, other times they would seize on words. And what Jesus and the other rabbis would do is they were imparting biblical knowledge to people. They actually wanted them to know intellectually, objectively, what what are the words of the Bible? what does god actually say not just a lofty general idea but what are the actual things that god inspired the prophets the psalmists and the historical writers to put in there and they would teach it and so when i look at that i say okay what we're doing here right now you being here right now you're actually aligning with the learning process that god himself established to the hebrew people and that jesus endorsed by by way of his participation so you being here tonight and saying, I want to learn, is something God can say, I endorse that in your life. But that's not all he did. It wasn't just didactic teaching. It also says he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And so when Jesus would go about, yes, he would teach precepts in the, in the synagogues, but typically when you see him going out on his preaching ministry, he's going out to the people and he's proclaiming. He's declaring. He may take the, the, the teaching of the scripture and then he proclaims it in a general sense. He applies it to people's lives. He would use illustrations. He would use parables. He, he would use oftentimes um, provocative language, not in the sense of cursing, but in, in challenging people and provoking people. And so often Jesus would call people to make a decision in the moment on what they just heard. And so teaching may be said, we might describe teaching as, I'm going to present you information for your opportunity to consider and hopefully to believe. Preaching is more urgent. Preaching says, thus saith the Lord, especially when Jesus was saying it, and and it calls people into an accountability. You know, one one of the frightening things that Jesus taught was that those who are exposed to greater levels of truth stand in a stricter judgment. Jesus actually said to the Pharisees, or said of the Pharisees, that they are going to have the greater condemnation on them one might wonder, well, why did he say that about them? Because they were harassing them? No, it's because they were exposed to so much more kingdom truth by the scribes and just being by nature a Pharisee, you're, you're immersed in all things from the Hebrew Bible back in those days, and those guys rejected Messiah when he came. And so Jesus makes this principle. He says this, because, I'm unpacking it, because you know so much, you're going to have the greater condemnation on you than these nations, these Gentiles, who rejected. it. It's pretty, pretty startling stuff. And so what did he do in order to help people avoid that potential? He preached to them the gospel of the kingdom, and we're going to talk about the kingdom all through this series, so I'm not going to go in depth on it tonight. But he would, call, he would preach to them the gospel of the kingdom, and then he would call them to align with what they've heard. Um, we're told in Scripture don't just hear the word do the word and guys listen ladies and gentlemen guys generically we are in a generation where there is more amen than there is obedience it's easy for us to say man amen and i'm not trying to tell you don't say amen I, i like the feedback i i'm one of those guys so i like that but what i'm saying is is an amen in the absence of Aligning and repenting and believing, we don't believe it really unless we obey it. And so, what, what the Lord does in these paths, He's going around, He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And so, I asked myself, okay, yes, you're in a you're in a spiritual family here, where the teaching and the preaching, uh, and the calls to repentance and the calls to action and the calls to decision. I think we're doing well on that, but that's not where he stops, so I'm going to get reconvicted here in the end of verse 23, because he went by his feet, and his voice was involved, and his hands were involved. What am I talking about? That he prepares the people for the sermon through his healing. I mean, let's just let the Bible speak. He's healing every disease and every affliction. Now, it's real easy for a lot of us to say, well, yeah, he's Jesus. He's God. He's doing that. But that's not all that the Bible says about healing. Did you know that Jesus commands us to go and heal? (laughs) That's inconvenient, isn't it? We're actually commanded. Now, I understand that people, and I used to be one of these guys, explained it away or relegated it to the apostles and relegated it to the people with gifts of healings. And I do understand that people can flow in that. But to the church at large, I'm going to tell you that the healing is is still part of the gospel mandate that the church at large, all of us, the body of Christ, we are supposed to be pressing in, believing for, and seeking healing on behalf of the sick, the afflicted, the diseased, and the man. And unfortunately, every single one of us in the room has been raised in a church generation, even if your particular uh, background did not endorse this, but most churches have taught us, don't expect that from the Lord that much anymore. Everybody will say, oh yeah, God can heal, but that's different than what I'm saying. What I'm saying is Jesus did four primary things in his ministry. He he taught in the synagogues, he didactically taught, he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, he cast out demons, and he healed the sick and the afflicted. And you can have a successful ministry today and do none of those things. And so when I'm looking at what my Lord did, and when I'm looking at the, what the first century church did in the book of Acts, and yes, the apostles and the prophets, but then you get to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and you see that Paul's endorsing healing gifts, prophetic gifts, gifts of tongues, gifts of faith, uh, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, all of these supernatural gifts, Paul's talking not to apostles and prophets, he's talking to the Christians. And so when I'm, when I'm seeing Jesus operate in this, I'm just going to tell you, I get deeply convicted. Um, I, my story is not most important. I don't need to make it central here, but I'm going to, I, if I'm going to be transparent, if, if there's one area in my life which the enemy loves to harness and harass me about, it is the lack of breakthrough I see on, see on healings. I have prayed for more than I can ever count, and I've seen two healings in my life that I know were verifiable healings, only two. And I'm a guy who actually believes in this, prays for this, fasts over this, acts in obedience towards it, and see very little breakthrough. Now, there are people in the room who see incredible breakthrough on that. But I believe that when when we are in the fullness of what God will release to the church, that it will not be surprising anymore when somebody gets healed. And friends, listen, let's contend for that in prayer contend for it in your own life, because there's, I don't think there's a reasonable Christian in the room that if, if they were convinced that God could use them to heal, I don't think there's a reasonable Christian in the room that would say, yeah, I don't want to do that. We would all want to do that, and we all should want to do that, but I'm telling you, we're not really seeking it at the level that I believe we should. Jesus went about in those massive crowds, and the Bible is just very clear, he, he healed every disease and every affliction. And most of those people would not believe on him, by the way. He's healing unbelievers who he, in his omniscience and sovereignty, knows will never come to him. He's probably healing some people who, in his foreknowledge, he knows that these are going to be some of the same ones crying out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And yet he still ministers love and healing. Hey, it doesn't bother me when unbelievers get healed. It's not not going to ruin my day when a person that says no to Jesus actually receives the mercy of God. Because God himself says, yeah, I actually let my rain fall on the, on the just and the unjust alike. And so I, I just believe that when we're pressing in, we're going to experience a release of healing, and I'll go to my grave completely dissatisfied if that doesn't happen in my lifetime. I believe that God wants to do it, and I do believe he's going to offer it to us. And then, just very briefly, <laughs> because I'm still on the first point, we are in one verse. He ministered and prepared the people by going, by speaking, through healing, and via connecting. And this just reminds me very simply with these three words that Jesus' heart was involved. He was among the people. He was among the people. And I, know, I know we all know what that means, but um, it just speaks to me that the king of glory... Willingly, intentionally walked, and remember, he's holy God. He's, don't let the fact that he's the son of man uh, give us amnesia, that he's also the son of God. He is holy God. And he, he is associating among the people with people that we've been taught in church to stay away from. The sexually immoral, the thieves, the covetous, the greedy, the drunks, prostitutes, at least one. Um, women in Jesus' day, there were some traditional writings by the rabbis that, I'll paraphrase here, that said, God, make me a dog before you make me a woman. And Jesus affirmed and validated and exalted women, and it was so countercultural. We can't fathom it. It's ironic to me that Christians now are, are viewed as the people that suppress women when our master is the one who released them and brought the understanding of eternal equality between male and female. But Jesus went to, to the people, and I, I'm going to tell you, um, I'm, I'm praying. We have prophets in this house, We have apostolic leaders. Office of the Apostle, I'm not going there, but I'm I'm just saying we have people with apostolic gifting in this house. We have teachers. We have pastors. We need more evangelists. We need people who can hold their breath, make it through an hour sermon, and then fly out the door to go find lost people. There are people that got equips and gifts, and listen, that's the heart of Jesus. Jesus loved to go after people, he said well jeff i, I don 't have time. Well, where do you work who 's in your neighborhood who 's in your family we we don 't need more time. we need better awareness and so when i'm re- i 'm only in one verse and i 'm already feeling like I need to just repent and get on my face i don 't even sense condemnation. I sense, Lord, how did we collectively get to the place where We've, we've, we've migrated away from just something so simple as, as going to the people, teaching and preaching and, and healing and believing for healing and expecting healing and fasting for healing and contending for healing and, and just being among the people. So all of this is going on. Go down into verse 24 and 25, Eureka. We made it to in the next verse. Here we go. Jesus demonstrated supernatural power. This speaks for itself. This isn't hard to preach or hard to understand. It's, it's just plain as day. Notice what went before him. This was always out ahead of Jesus. The Bible says his fame spread throughout all Syria. Syria is just kind of refers to the land that's often called Palestine now, and, and it's, it includes Galilee and other parts. And So his fame is going. There's no social media there's there's no newspaper there's no you know official reporting it's all word of mouth because Jesus has generated a supernatural movement that Israel had not seen in 400 years John the Baptist was the first voice in 4 centuries but prior to that I mean even with John there's still John didn't do a single recorded miracle so when Jesus bursts on the scene and people are getting healed and delivered and I mean it's it's just It's gonzo. I mean, it's amazing. And so the the roar of the masses begins to churn. And his fame, his name, begins to be spoken all throughout um, uh, Palestine and Syria. And so that goes before him. And look at what in verse 24, what flowed from him. The end of verse 24 just says this He healed them. Who did he heal? I want to know who he went after because I want to be like him I want to walk where he walks I believe he lives in me in the presence of the Holy Spirit he said that the works that he did I'll do and greater works than he did I'll do that's what Jesus said that's not boastful that's believing the Son of God the Son of God said those who believe on me will do what I do and they'll do greater works than I do that's an inconvenient verse for me in my former cessationist days so who are the people? Well, first of all, it says that in verse 24, they brought them all the sick and those that were afflicted with various diseases and pains. So Jesus shows authority and power over disease. And so people are, I mean, you've got to, I think we see this in an orderly Western 21st century fashion. Like everybody's waiting in line. They take a step forward. Then they take a step forward. They call Johnny who's afflicted. Uh, let's bring Johnny forward. And they, It's not like that. It's crowds of people there's no crowd control. They're flocking to him. It's, it's, it's in, to the natural eye, it's chaos at times. I mean, imagine your desperation and my desperation. We're just trying to get to one person, the man on the hill named Jesus, and we've got the love of our life who's not gonna make it to sundown. And, and we're trying to get him or her to Jesus, but we're happened to be surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands of other people with the same desperation. And we do crazy stuff when we're desperate, especially on behalf of those that we love. And so it's chaos, and they're bringing the disease to Jesus. But let's, let's, let's turn the dial up one. It's not only power over disease, it's power over demons. The Bible says they brought him those that were oppressed by demons. Um, by God's grace, I haven't been around a lot of demonization. I don't know if you knew this, um, There, there was a woman that showed up here this weekend that had a demon. And we've tried to help in times past and done everything that we can to lovingly uh, offer ministry to her. And I'm going to tell you, she, she doesn't need my sermons. She doesn't need to be baptized in the water. She doesn't need, you know, a Tuesday night visit with a little loaf of pie or bread or whatever, you know, she doesn't need a pat on the head or a pat on the back. She needs an encounter with a power of God that will evict the demon out of her life that is in absolute control of her. And so we don't see it as overtly often, we don't see it often as overtly as we see it in the New Testament, but demons don't have to be loud and scary to be present, and they typically like to adapt to the culture that they're in. And because one of the strongholds of the American church is intellectualism, demons often move through philosophies, theologies, and teachings, and they don't really have to do the scary freakout show. Because now, my friend, I've got a friend who is a prophet in, in um, uh, southern Nigeria. And when Jude was there, he said the, demon, the demon acti- demonic activity over there is completely different. It involves witch doctors. It involves visitation in dreams. It involves curses. It involves bloody sacrifices left on your doorstep. It involves foaming at the mouth, flipping out. He said he's seen people levitate. And so the enemy knows how to adapt to a culture. So just because it doesn't look like that craziness doesn't mean that it's not present. And listen, on our own, We're no match for a demon. No match for a demon on our own. Thank God we're not on our own, Christian. Because he who is in us is greater than the one or the ones that are in this world. And so here's the thing. Um, I anticipate that the more we're pressing into God's best, the more we should expect to see the enemy's harshest. Because he doesn't like to give up ground. And he fights. And listen, I, I, I really didn't plan to go down this road. But, but the reality is, is the serpent in the garden was subtle and he still is. And we often open up doors in our lives to demonic philosophies and thoughts and activities and images and sounds and all of that stuff. And we've got, we have got to get holy, friends, and militant about preserving the tabernacle, the temple. And, and to say, no entrance. Uh, Matthew Henry said centuries ago, uh, Satan is the thief to whom we open the door. And so we have the ability, A, to prevent that activity in our life, but B, when it does touch something in our life, we have authority over it. That literally, the Bible says, submit yourself to God, A, resist the devil, B, and C, he will flee from you. Could you imagine, wouldn't you like to send a demon to go get counseling? Because you have resisted him, you have frustrated him, you have fought him, you have pled the blood of Jesus against him. He's got no room to work in your life. And I'm telling you, we have the ability to do this, not only in our own lives, but on behalf of those in our lives that are afflicted. But we've got to learn how to recognize it for what it is. Jesus displayed power over demons, and people got set free. People that were in chains spiritually got set free in a moment of time because of the authority and the love and the power of Jesus Christ, boom, the demon had to go. Power over disabilities, too. It's just connected to disease, but it's slightly different. It says in verse 24, those having seizures and paralytics. And so people with permanent disabilities were healed. Um, I'm just going to be honest. I think think we owe each other a debt of honesty. There, There are people that often... I think, ask valid questions of the church, especially those of us that believe in the power of God to do these things. they just like, ah, we hear you. Uh, we don't believe in that stuff. And since you believe in it, can I ask one question? How come y'all don't do it? How come, how come, how come when it's a healing, it's always like a, a cramp in the side or a ringing ear or a migraine? How come it's not that the quadriplegic? And my friends, listen, it takes no greater power of God to raise up a quadriplegic than it does to soothe a fever. The issue is not one that we can avoid. I'm troubled by this in my spirit. I'm not content to preach these things and then shrug at the fact that I'm not seeing these things. And I believe that if we can we can enter into a collective hunger and recognize that the absence of these things are potentially an affront to the glory of God in our generation. They're a dimmer switch on the glory of God, at least as it's perceived. Then we will come to a place where we're grieved and we're not willing to live with it uh, or without it anymore. Those having seizures calm found their body their 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 brain started firing like it should again because jesus loved them and touched them and healed them paralytics took up their mat and walked people with maimed other places in the gospels describe jesus as doing creative miracles those that were maimed were restored and the only way you can restore uh, restore a maimed person is for that limb to grow back that's our lord and I'm, I'm grieved, and I'm saddened that we don't see it, but I do believe it. I, I, I do believe it. If I didn't believe it, we would have been done with this. I wouldn't have preached this message. We'd just gone straight to the Word, straight to the Sermon on the Mount. Why bother with this stuff if God doesn't do it anymore? I'm telling you, the reason we don't see it is because we really don't believe He does it. We, we nod our head and we say amen to him. And By the way, I'm not indicting anybody in the room, because some of you are about to stand up and say, I do believe in it. Will you move to the next point? The, 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 the issue is that we collectively, as the body of Christ, we have just kind of awkwardly said, let's, let's not talk about that. And unbelievers are saying, yeah, you don't want to talk about it because you don't want to admit it's not real. And so we've got to get to that place where not only is it in our sermons, but it's displayed through our lives. All right, so let's go a little bit further. Verse 25, Woohoo! two verses down. Look who came after him. What went before him was his his fame. What flowed from him was his healing. Who came after him? Great crowds followed him. From Galilee and the Decapolis, where there's 10 cities that were grouped together, it would be like the metro area. And from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And so when you think of great crowds, let me just give you this. It's not actually a verse, but I just want you to use your mind tonight. So in a great crowd of people, hundreds if not thousands of people we know at times there were thousands up to 15,000 or more that followed him so let's just say thousands of people let me tell you who you've got in that crowd and these are the people that are following Jesus you've got some decent people these people are curious they're wondering about this one named Jesus they're not overtly sinful they're wanting some clarified answers about who Jesus truly is is he the Messiah is he our king is, is the kingdom coming? So they're, they're decent people. But they haven't necessarily committed themselves, but they're, they're pressing in. By the way, every time we gather together, it's highly likely that we have people that have not committed themselves to Christ yet, and they're not terrible human beings. They're lost. They're unforgiven. They're unregenerate. But they're decent people who are actually curious. You say, well, why is that important, Jeff? Because we need to show them common decency and be kind to them. We, we actually in the church do not graduate from being polite because we're the children of God. We treat people with common decency. And so curious people sometimes never get their answers because they can't get to Jesus because we're in the way. And so we want to be the kind of people that when decent, curious people come, we want to help them. We want to represent Jesus to them at work. We want to represent Jesus to them on the ball field, at the lake, at the beach, in restaurants, in restaurants. If you're a Christian, oh man, I'm feeling a little like I'm poking you tonight, but poke on, I will. Here we go. If if, if you're in restaurants and and you're rude to your waitress or you're not a good tipper, do not witness to that person. Do not tell them you are a Christian. Please, just tell them you are an agnostic. If, If you can't be decent and kind, then don't attach the name of Jesus to it. Listen, I have pastored waitresses before, and they'll say that on Sundays they hate working because Christians are the worst tippers. Come in there with our Sunday finery on and leave a 3% tip. Come on. All right, I'm glad I got that pebble out of my shoe. I feel better. (laughs) Decent people. There's also dissatisfied people. You got people that would have been in that crowd that they're living for themselves, they're living for the moment, they're living for pleasure, but they know they're empty. And, and, and they're, they're hearing about Jesus, and there's, there's a pull from the grace of God on their heart. And so they show up in the crowd. They're dissatisfied. They, they may be enjoying their sin for a season, but it's not doing it for them anymore. And so they show up in the crowd. Then you got desperate people, and they, they've heard Jesus' words. They've heard of his power, and they're determined to meet him. Some of them bringing sick and afflicted friends and family with them. They're desperate in the crowd. You got doubting people in the crowd, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious people. These are honest skeptics who needed time to make up their minds. Let me let me just address that too. Um, I I actually think that skepticism can be a very healthy gift. And so when when we meet people that are skeptics or have questions, or maybe even they're a little dismissive of what we believe about Jesus and the kingdom, you know. Don't, don't sh- be too quick to shake the dust off your sandals and, and pronounce anathema on them. Um, I, think, I think that skeptics are owed, in our debt of love to people, they're owed a, a sitting and an ability to ask legitimate questions. And we have to give honest answers and then leave the believing to them. But I, I can imagine in the big crowd with Jesus that day, there's people that have heard about the healings, heard about the demon possession, heard the rumblings of whether this might or might not be the Messiah, and they're just kind of like, Come on, you know. Thomas seemed to be one of those guys, and he was a disciple. And he, was, he, he had a hard time just giving himself. If you're a skeptic, if you're a naturally kind of, mm, show-me-state kind of person, what's the show-me-state? Missouri? Yeah, if it's a, is that hometown? Yeah? No? Okay. I thought Kelly was hitting me up there. So the, it's, some people just, they, they really, they need a little extra. And I, there's a place for you in the kingdom. There's a place for you. All I would say to you is keep asking the questions, but eventually you're going to have to settle for an answer that might be different than the one you you began with. And So it's one thing to be skeptical and inquisitive. It's another thing to be obstinate and unbelieving. And so the reality is, is we we got a great mix in this faith family. We got people from all sorts of different camps that the Lord has brought to this place. And we've all heard different nuances of things in the kingdom. And then you get a Yahoo like me up here preaching dogmatically about something. And you're saying, I don't know about that. No problem whatsoever. We, we are not leaders that can't be questioned. This is what I, I would say. If you don't know, then don't assume you're right either. Be an honest inquisitor and find your answers. And there's always people like that in the crowd. And then you're going to have devoted people. Listen, the great crowd has got all these. You've got doubting folks, desperate folks, dissatisfied folks, decent folks. And then you've got devoted people that knew him, recognized him as Messiah, had already bowed to him, and they would follow him all the way to the cross. And ultimately, that's our goal for every single one of us is to to, yeah, if we're in the crowd, that's one thing, but I want to be one of the devoted ones in the crowd. So we'll go down into chapter number five. You, you, will, you may get out early tonight. Glory to God. First two verses in chapter five. So as, as this is the scene, remember the scene, massive amount of people thronging to Jesus. He's been ministering for a, quite a bit of time, signs, wonders, healings, miracles, authority over the demonic, preaching and teaching. He's, he's just pouring his godhood out on people. He's just releasing himself. I am the son of God. I am the Messiah. If you can't believe my words, don't forget the works. I'm just giving myself to you in any way that I can. And so as that momentum is building, he, he blows the whistle. He calls a timeout. He climbs up a pretty high hill takes the position of being able to speak to the people at a broader range. He calls his disciples, those that were traveling with him, up to him. And it says that he began to teach them. Let's just look at this. First of all, he chose the audience. Simple three words, seeing the crowds. What that does to me is it, it, it defines a Moment. It's not that Jesus was just aware there were crowds there. It it paints this picture. that in the midst of everything that was going on, Jesus processing cognitively as the son of man, he actually used his brain. The Bible, you can wrestle with this one. Bible says that he grew in wisdom. I don't know how omniscience grows in wisdom, but that's what my Bible says. So Jesus actually submitted to learning processes. As a child, he didn't pop out of the womb and say, hello, everybody. He he actually went through infanthood and nursing and whatever they did with diapers back in the day. He went through all of that. And so he grew. He learned how to read. He learned how to write. But as, as life progressed, clearly he operates in omniscience and he moves as God. And the Bible says he sees the crowd. And it's not just that he saw a bunch of people. He discerned what the Father was doing in the moment. Jesus said he never did anything except what the Father was doing. He said he only spoke what the Father was saying. So he's constantly in line. And the Father's looking at these crowds. And Jesus, in complete union with the Father, is looking on these crowds. And in essence, though it's not written there, he makes a decision, now is the time to release this message. I, I love the timing of God. I'm, I say that only because <laughs> I've learned to love it. Um, Let's just take a poll. Would anybody be willing to admit sometimes they believe God moves too slowly? Okay, there's three of us in here and the rest of you are cowards, amen? (laughs) That's just us. God just does not uh, accelerate the flow to, to keep us comfortable. But his timing is always perfect. It really is always perfect and it's never arbitrary. Jesus came in the fullness of Time he was born of a virgin. There are descriptors all throughout both Old and New Testament that indicate a precision from God concerning when he acts in certain areas. And so when he's not acting on my behalf, when I think or I wish that he would be, it's it's not God who's missing it, it's me. So he cultivates patience. But in this instance, nobody knew what was coming, but Jesus sees the crowd, so he knows exactly who's in the audience, and he knows now is the time to preach what we would call the Sermon on the Mount. And then he chooses the place. It, it just says he went up on the mountain. Now, when I think of a mountain, I think of like at, at least Stone Mountain. I remember when I was in um, Tanzania, the place where they were keeping us. Man, God was so gracious to me. When I got in the room, I was exhausted. It was a long flight. The sun was getting ready to set. and I noticed I had a little back porch. And I just opened the door. I didn't even really look. And I heard all these beautiful sounds, af- sounds of Africa. It was just, if you haven't been, I can't explain it to you. It was just Africa. You could hear it. And then when, when I, I stepped out, on the, I looked up, and there is Kilimanjaro. I mean, like right there. It was, it was miles away. But that thing just blew my mind. I'm not even one of those nature Christians, you know, the Christians that just commune with God in nature I'm just I'm not that guy but I sat there on that back porch and I just looked at that thing and just stayed in awe of God so that's what I think of when I think of a mountain that or like stone mountain but this was more than likely um, a tall hillside um, it was not so tall that the people were too distant to hear him but it was tall enough to where clearly he, he elevated himself which would have displayed both intentionality and authority. And he, he, he sits down up there. When we preach, we stand. That's just Western Christianity. In Jesus' day, the preacher or the teacher would sit down. And so we, we see him choosing the moment. We see him choosing the place. And, and here's the moment right here that he chose in verses, the end of verse 1 two. and 2. It says, when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, and everything he said is what we're going to be studying for for the rest of uh the summer. The uh there are people that say, Well, the Sermon on the Mount was only for the disciples, because that's who he taught. And so it was just for them. I hate it when I hear people say that. So I, Oh, well, the gifts of the Spirit, he was just talking to the church at Corinth. He's not talking. I was like, well, what about the church of Rome? Because he talks about the gifts of the Spirit there. What about Ephesus? Because he talks about fivefold ministry there. So the reality is sometimes people who want to avoid accountability with the passage of Scripture will find a way to say that. That doesn't apply to me. I just want to go ahead and tell you. I'm not even going to argue it. Everything we're about to go through in the Sermon amount is binding on all of us. It's just, it's just God's word. So let's become people who are not looking for clever ways to get out of God's word. Um, it says that He did teach his disciples, but when you, when you get to the end of Matthew 5, it says all of the people were astounded at what He said. And I'm thinking about, like, dude, you've got a PhD. in theology. And you couldn't read 15 more verses to find out he actually talked to the entire crowd that day and not just to the disciples. And so what we're about to get into, and I'm done tonight, what we're about to get into is the teaching of God the Son about heart issues, how we are, how we we behave, but not in the sense of tsk, 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 you're not behaving properly, but... How, how do we and how should we and how can we interact with the world around us with the heart of Jesus? Do you know you, you can actually do that? You and I can actually daily, consistently, joyfully approach all of the population on planet Earth and we can actually be like Jesus every day. And he's going to empower that. He's going to teach on some tough stuff too, by the way. He's going to teach on money. He's going to teach on lust. He's going to teach on hatred in the heart. And and listen, he he so bounces the, the, the low standard that we settle for. He makes repeated statements. You have heard it said unto you, this, but I say unto you this, and he elevates, and and what people don't understand is in him doing this, he is actually preferring, he is conferring honor upon us as his disciples. When he calls us to live in a certain way, he's saying, I can do that through you, and I'm commanding it because I believe deep inside you want it to, and we will do this. Yeah. So as he goes after our hearts this summer, let's just go ahead and say, yes, it's not going to be easy. Um, we, we've somewhere learned in the church in America that if it's not easy, it's not possible. <laughs> and we forget that the whole premise of our following Jesus is that we do it with a cross that we die on not easy but good and holy and on the back end of carrying your own cross denying yourself dying daily there is glory there is glory not not when we get to glory there's glory now there's a growing intimacy with this beautiful one called Jesus that will revolutionize not just our christianity our entire life our marriages our parenthood, our grandparenthood, our future marriages. Oh my goodness, if you're single in the room, come every Wednesday night and you start being who God empowers you to be through, through the Sermon on the Mount and your spouse is going to get a gift from God when he or she gets you. I wish I, I, wish I had known in the early years of my marriage how to live these out. I so could have honored my wife better. I so could have done a better job in the early years with my kids. But I don't, I don't have a, a closed door on that opportunity, and neither do you. So let's stand up tonight. So when Jesus preached, he, he, he called for a decision. I'm not asking for any public decisions or anything like that. I'm just saying, when you leave tonight, will you have a conversation with the Lord? And, and be bold. Have faith and just say, Lord, to the degree that I know it's from your word this summer in this series, I commit to yield. I commit to surrender. I commit to trust. Lord, if if you will show me it's of your heart through your word, then I commit to bow and to believe that you can do these things in my life and through my life. So, Father, we say yes. This Wednesday, the first in the series, and we trust you. Lord, help us not wait till next Wednesday. Help us to get hungry over Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Help us to devour the word, to eat the word, so that the word is all up in our system. In Jesus' name, amen.